Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, Chief Executive here and also a proud member, and it's my privilege and honor to introduce our speaker today. He's the President and CEO of the U.S. Green Building Council and Green Building Certification Incorporated, Mr. Mahesh Ramanujan. Over the last 25 years, green building has grown into a trillion-dollar industry, and Leadership in Energy and Environmental Design Program, commonly known as LEED, has become the most widely used green building certification program in the world. As awareness of climate change and the urgent need for sustainable practices has grown and evolved, so too has the global green building market. In 2019, the USGBC announced the Living Standard Campaign, an effort to move beyond materials, construction, and efficiency to focus on people, on human beings, and raising their quality of life. It is part of an overall and ambitious goal to make green communities, cities, and entire nations recognize that sustainability is not limited to the places we live and work. It is also part of the way in which we lead our lives. We're here today to learn more about this effort. Mr. Ramanujam joined the U.S. Green Building Council in 2009 as Senior Vice President of Technology and became Chief Operating Officer in 2011. The following year, he was also named President of the Green, of green Building Certification Institute, and he was named President and CEO in January of 2017. Prior to joining USGBC, he was COO of Emergis Corporation, and for more than a decade, he successfully led various business transformation programs at IBM and Lenovo. Mr. Ramanujan is in conversation with IdeaStream reporter and producer Justin Glanville. Before his current role with IdeaStream, he was founder of Sidewalk, a revolving collaborative of writers, producers, designers, artists, and urban planners working with nonprofits and foundations who want to better understand the needs and hopes of the people they serve. As an urban planner, he previously worked for Land Studio in Cleveland, and as a journalist and writer, he previously worked for the Associated Press in New York. His work has appeared on Studio 360 with Kurt Anderson in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, The Architect's Newspaper, and Planning Magazine. Esteemed guests, members, and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Mr. Mahesh Ramanujan and Justin Glanville. All right, well, thank you, everyone, for being here. It's a pleasure to be up on stage with Mahesh, and um, I'm excited to have this conversation. And I was, I was telling Mahesh um, as we were walking in that I wanted to start with a little story of my own background in green building, um, which is a little known fact. Uh, so when I first came out of planning school in about 2007, um, green building was it. It was it, you know? It was like everyone wanted to figure out green building. It seemed like we were really having this moment and when I was first getting started at Land Studio, um, you know, my role was to try to encourage more sustainable building and design in the city of Cleveland. Um, and I didn't know much about that. And green building was really the place that I got started trying to figure that out. And I remember that in late 2007, I went to Green Build, which probably a lot of you have been 
to Greenbuild. It's the, it's the annual Green Building Conference. And it was in Chicago that year. And it was a madhouse. It was a madhouse. It was, I actually looked this up. There were 23,000 people there that year. And I think the previous year, it had been half that many people. So it was just this explosion of interest. And it was just palpable. And um, I ended up becoming a lead AP, which I had no business doing because you know I don't know most of these terms. Uh, but it was again, it was all of the, it was all just the sense of like this is something we all have to figure out as a as a nation, and I think my sense I was kind of reflecting on this. My sense is that since then, so this is about twelve years ago. It's not that people have lost interest, but that kind of that sense of urgency and just like this is the thing we all need to figure out. It seems like it's lessened maybe over that time. So my, just my opening question to you, because I know you started at G, USGBC around 2009. Um, so my opening question to you is just, in your time in this movement, have you perceived the same thing of this, this sort of initial explosion of interest followed by a sort of lessening of that? And if so, why do you think that is? Uh, I think I have a slightly different perspective, but uh, first let me share some stats. Um, when I joined USGBC in 2009, we were in the middle of the financial meltdown. And uh, pretty much in US, nothing was getting done, regardless of what's happening. The real estate sector imploded, the financial sector imploded. So at that point of time, lead kind of became slow in the US. It became a play for the differentiated market for people who were still building. But then it started booming in Asia Pacific. So when we entered in 2009, from my point of view, we were at probably close to 50,000 projects in participating in LEED in close to less than, I would say, 90 to 95 countries. Today, LEED is present in 176 countries and territories, and we are close to 100,000 projects, almost there, hopefully by the end of the year, 100,000. 100,000 projects with 47,000 projects certified. Just to give a little bit of statistic, when I entered in 2009, the mix between the US and international was 70% versus 30% number of projects. Today, we do 50-50. In 2009, we were certifying one international project every week. Today, we certify every one international project every four hours. So the global mix has changed. But to your point, it has slowed down from a different perspective. The people who do lead continue to do lead. They scale lead. But what we are seeing slowed down is that people are kind of piecemealing the effort. They're saying only, I will do only energy. I'll only do waste. I'll do only health and wellness. So that's kind of a slowdown because that is counterintuitive to what we have done in the past two decades with Elite, which is about holistic design, integrated process design, and making sure that you don't save energy at the cost of comfort to the occupants. So it's, it's a different type of slowdown, not in terms of numbers. I'm very bullish about the numbers. In fact, we're going to do much better. But the question is, how are we getting there is very important. Mm, I like it. I like it. Okay. So, so backing up a little bit, uh, I, I heard you, I think, give these numbers. So correct me if I'm wrong sure. recently. So you know, USGBC was founded in 1993. Correct. So you had your 25th anniversary last year. And then LEED was founded in 2000. And the whole impetus behind this was you know, buildings are, we've got to figure out buildings because they create something like 40% uh, of worldwide carbon emissions. Do I have that right? Correct. And they account for something between 35 and 40% of energy use in the world. So buildings are a real thing we have to figure out. 
So 25 years after the USGBC was founded, 19 years after LEED, can you kind of give us some perspective on, you know, what's, what impact are we having on those numbers in terms of um, buildings that are being built today? I think uh, it's a very profound question because that's one thing that keeps me awake every day, right? How do we know that we are making progress, right? I, I give away plaques every single day around the world. And, <laughs> and uh, I, I always worry about, is it really working? And if it is working, is it working fast enough, right? So when you look at it from that perspective, clearly, undoubtedly, uh, around the world, green, green buildings, lead buildings are saving energy, saving water, saving uh, waste from landfills, and making sure that uh, it is becoming a safer environment for building occupants so that they can breathe clean air and have the best comfort inside those buildings and have higher productivity. But however, we have not done a very good job in being able to quantify that consistently. The way we defined LEED as a standard and helped improve design, construction, and operations, we have not done a really a good job of really helping the market quantify and really articulate exactly this is the amount of carbon reduction we have achieved. This is exactly how much water we have saved. This is exactly how much waste has been awarded. This is exactly how much energy has been awarded in terms of cost as well as savings. Has not been well articulated, and, and we are catching up, and that is why we have moved to the digital vision of LEED which is to basically saying a very simple thing. What gets measured gets done. What gets done gets improved. What gets improved gets replicated. What gets replicated transforms the market and raises the living standard for everybody. So that's the vision we are doing, but I would say that we are in the startup stage of that okay. vision. Okay, all right. And uh, just in case anyone doesn't know, LEAD stands for Leadership in Environmental... Leadership, Leadership. in Energy and Environmental Design. I should not try to define that while I have <laughs> you sitting next to me. Okay. Um, and that's, it's a rating system where um, buildings can be certified, but, uh, and that was, I think, how it started, was Correct. buildings were certified. But I think one of the interesting things that's evolved over the years is that there's now lead for homes, there's lead for neighborhoods, um, and there's lead even for entire cities. Correct. So can you talk a little bit about the development of those rating systems and what you've been seeing and how they've been evolving? Actually, the lead started with, I think, the primarily because of the demand and interest in the office sector, right? I mean, the, the, many of the office occupants came in and said, because became, they became socially conscious, and they said, we need to have the space that does well for our people and also does good for the environment. That's how it started. So it started in the office space, and very quickly the office sector picked up lead because people demanded that to, go, they went to developers and said, hey, and architects and engineers and contractors said, give me a green building. And that's how our journey of LEED started. LEED started as a checklist. I call LEED as a nutrition label for green buildings. And uh, here we are with 100,000 projects. But during the journey, I've been asked many things. Can LEED work for shipping yards? Can LEED work for airports? Can LEED work for um, homes? Can LEED work for distribution centers? It goes on and on. Because the idea is LEED is not simply a checklist, but it's a framework, it's a mindset. So if you apply that ecosystem mindset to something else, what impact we can create for that? So we have gone through the journey of basically being able to make lead apply to different spaces. And simply put, I said lead works for all spaces, be it schools, be it retail spaces, be it cities, be it communities, et cetera. But then our evolution into cities and communities came in, in the last, uh, I would say, a few years, primarily because of the massive urbanization that's happening around the world. And particularly, this learning came to me from Asia Pacific. As I was traveling to China, I literally saw that the definition of a building by LEED standard was getting constantly modified. The mixed-use development came in, 
urban development came in. So the definition of a building being an office space or a retail tower or just a, a manufacturing facility started a little bit getting blurred and it became a stacked up facility. And when you start looking at it, you are almost creating a, a mini community. For example, Taipei 101 has got 12,000 people. And 12,000 people is basically a vertical city. It's one building. It's a vertical city. When you think of that building and its occupants, what kind of amenities, what kind of infrastructure you need to have around those buildings to make it effective. So when you, when you go through that process, it became very clear to us this dynamic tension between buildings and cities or communities was, was not making sense. We need to integrate them as seamlessly as possible, which means there are going to be macro policies that are happening at cities and communities level that has to clearly work in conjunction with the, I would say in this case, a micro policy that works for the buildings. And, and being able to really make that connection was our passion and our vision. And, and in the meantime, last 15 years, cities have done phenomenal work, particularly after we made a decision from the United States point of view to get out of the Paris Climate Agreement. What happened was two things happened. One is we got out of the agreement, then we doubled down on the agreement. What I mean by the later is that all the cities, regardless of which city leader I've met, they're always talking about climate action plans, um, talking about livability, healthy cities, cities that are economically prosperous for their constituents. So when you look at that, these climate action plans, be it related to resilience, health and wellness, equity, or for that matter, economic prosperity, are all accelerating on the front. So that gave us the motivation to say, let's give them a framework. Let's give them a consistent way of demonstrating their leadership to amplify the work that they do and also to identify the gaps so that we can actually help cities do better. So that's how we evolved from buildings to communities to cities. Because after all, better buildings equal better lives, better communities equal better lives, and better cities equal better lives. Importantly, better homes equal better lives. That's the aspiration. I love it. I love it. And has there been a city that's been LEED certified yet? Is uh, <laughs> exciting. The Washington, D.C. became the first uh, LEED platinum city in the world. That is very special because our headquarters is in Washington, D.C. So if you are not uh, making changes at home, how good are you going to make the change for the rest of the world? So glad that we got that one in the back. Yes. <laughs> so for various other reasons, also it's a good thing. And then, uh, the, then since then, 99 cities have been certified to lead cities or lead communities. Okay. Today we have 99 cities. So here, since we are in the state of Ohio, um, Cleveland and Columbus are already certified as oh, lead great. for cities. Okay. And then right now we are in the we are in the process of uh, thanks to Bank of America our partners uh, support that we are able to bring 15 more cities into the next uh, generation lead for city certification and two cities uh, Cincinnati and uh, Shaker Heights are both are actively participating and I told them that that hundredth slot is reserved for them any one of them can take it we'll be very happy about it <laughs> okay great. Um, okay, so we've been talking a lot about statistics and certifications, but I know um, from talking to you a little bit that you're really trying to, you know, as part of your work toward the future, you're really trying to bring the green movement and lead to people and make it about people more than about ratings and about points and about buildings. So how are you doing that and how is it going so far and where where did that idea come from that you needed to start to talk to people's experiences more than kind of the tech, more technical aspects you you interestingly you mentioned greenbuild a little earlier in 2007 so in 2012 greenbuild in san francisco as soon as our president and ceo at the time rick frederizzi our founder 
gave his opening remarks and he got down from the stage. One of my friends and colleagues, Sarah Greenstein from ULE, she was the president of ULE at the time, she shook me up and said, Mahesh, stop talking among yourselves. And I almost got offended. And I said, Sarah, what are you talking about? There are 20,000 people right, sit, sitting here. What do you mean by talking among ourselves? And that thought sat in my head for a long time. And then recently, as we were going through the evolution, we talked about lead being applied to different sectors. One sector we have not performed very well with lead is the existing building stock. Because existing buildings bring a very different type of challenges. They have different starting points. They have different uh, priorities. And most importantly, they have different investment goals. So when you look at an existing building, which makes it up to the 90% of the building stock in the world, we were not able to make enough progress. And I kept analyzing why. On the new construction sector, we are able to make progress because in the new construction sector, people demand things. People want the greatest and latest technologies, the best practices, and everything best can go into a new building, goes into a new building because it's a capital project. But when it comes to an existing building, it is always bottoms up, which means that a facility manager has to make the case, a sustainability manager has to make the case. So it's a bottoms up engagement. So what we realized was the occupants of the building had no connection to the buildings. They were not doing enough to create the demand or to desire that they could be in a better place. So that started the conversation in my mind about saying, how do we really understand and motivate people to really drive them to that kind of sense of urgency that they could demand to be in a better place as comparable to a newly certified LEED Platinum building. So that's how the conversation started. And, uh, and that also started with the understanding that I keep hearing our own people talk among ourselves, right? We all speak our green language. Our green language is that when I sit in the room with our leaders, they will talk about ACPs, pilot credits, rating systems, best practice, guidelines, protocols, energy benchmarking, GAG emissions, carbon. Uh, they will talk about kilowatt hours uh, avoided, kilowatt hours used. I, how do, you, how do you make this conversation become a layman speak, for lack of a better word, or laywoman speak in this case? It, it, the point is that, is that language is not translatable. That language is not inspirational. That language puts you to sleep. So <laughs> I, I just said, like, okay, can we get past this language and really modify the language and just speak in simple terms? I'll give you an example. Our mission was defined in 1993. It's a profound mission. I'll say that slowly so that you can follow. Buildings, communities, and cities will regenerate and sustain the health and vitality of all life within a generation. Fantastic. Mm. But if I ask you to repeat it now, I'm not going to ask. Any takers? Okay. Any takers? <laughs> no, I don't think so. Yeah. So how about better buildings equal better lives? That connects with people. Mm. That's the shift I'm trying to make because uh, messaging matters, language matters and, to and broaden engagement. Yeah, and, and what do you find really resonates with people? People who don't have that language that you're talking about, that scary language um, about you know, all the technical stuff. What, what, what causes them to really sit up and listen when you're talking? Just I think the first people. and foremost is foremost, the, all, the million dollar question all of us ask. What is in it for me? The more and more you contextualize to what is in it for me, I think the conversation becomes a very easy conversation to continue. At least it starts the conversation. So for us, it's very difficult to quantify to your earlier question. How do we know that we are making progress? The only way we know how to make progress is when people say, what is in it for me? And I'm doing that for my own reasons. 
because nobody is ignoring their health, at least hope not. And you're basically conscious. You're trying to always worry about, if, you, if, if you're not well, you're gonna pay attention, you're gonna take medicine. So when you start contextualizing this in the context of your health, or for that matter, your family's health, I think that's a better conversation starter than energy efficiency, carbon, climate change, the world is going to end in 30 years. Those type of conversations don't inspire people. In fact, they intimidate people. So it's, yeah. a, it's a shift that we are seeing in terms of contextualizing human health and wellness is key to making progress, particularly with the language that we have been using with the green. And, and you know, for folks here, is there, is there a thing you say about how green buildings can improve someone's health or, um, you know what I mean? Like how yes. do you bring it down to earth and make it understandable? I, I, think, I think the basic obvious thing to do is that I'll narrate a story. This is the best way to articulate this. So Delhi became the most polluted uh, city in the world. Polluted means, this, uh, I'll give you a context of that, is that it became, if you, if you breathe the air in Delhi in a day, you would have smoked equivalent to 50 cigarettes. 50 cigarettes a day would be the equivalent of breathing that air. Now, this is nothing new. I mean, in this country, we have cleaned up a lot of indoor environmental issues. But Delhi, that is the case. So a gentleman by name Kamal Mittal, this is the story I tell. He's the CEO of Powerpur Business Center. He has got a LEED certified existing building. And his lung capacity got diminished by 30%. So he was asked by the doctors to leave the town to change location and approved his family, his, his business, everything. But he refused to do it. Instead, what he did is that he brought, he did some research, he analyzed it. He brought three plants that can be grown inside the home or the house or the building and really used it to create better indoor environmental quality. So with those three plants, he was able to clean up the air and now he close, grows close to 1,000 plants in his building. And now that has become the healthiest space in Delhi at this point. So that's the story I would like to talk about when you start contextualizing what does it mean in terms of really telling people. And it is not difficult. If you go and Google it, you'll find a TED talk. He actually names the three plants. And it's not a big step to take. And people will obviously take that step. So to me, it's about contextualizing and saying, what actually affects indoor air quality? What affects comfort? What affects productivity? And why you need fresh air inside a building? Those type of languages have a, a better chance of winning the argument with common people, even advanced knowledge experts, to really move the needle. So that's the way we like to start talking about these things. And, uh, and there are adequate examples in the market. The only problem is we are not making an effort to articulate that in that sense. Great. And, and you brought up India, and I know you grew up in Chennai, India, which is in southern India. I wonder if you would speak a little bit about your childhood. Is there a particular memory that you have of, um, I know you grew up without a lot of means, um, and that really, for you, um, drove home for you the importance of living sustainably, living with less. Is there a moment you could share with us about you know, your childhood where you really remember learning that lesson? It's, it's interesting, uh, that question is very interesting to me always, because a couple of things there. One is that, of course, I've done the math, I've read science, I'm a computer science engineer, I worked at IBM, and uh, I've run businesses, I've run technology transformation, but none of it has come handy when I have to show my commitment to uh, combating climate crisis or climate risk. Interestingly, my childhood is the actual frame that I'm using to combat climate crisis. Because, of course, growing up in Chennai, the southern part of India, my father was very kind to me because even when he was making only 50 bucks a year, 50 bucks a month, he made sure that there was enough food on the table. 
Eating three meals a day was a challenge. And I barely had two sets of clothes for the entire year. And this is not a unique story to me, to be clear on that part. This is the basic story that probably I would say 75 to 80% of Indians at that point of time uh, were realizing it. Actually, people actually send their children to school so that they can get a good meal, right? And so to me, it is very profound that my father would make that kind of contribution to make sure that I am educated. And of course, my brother as well and invested all the things he had to invest. And actually here I am, proudly serving as the President and CEO of US Green Building Council. That's the journey that I've come through, but it's simply because of the sacrifices and investments he made for me. Now let me contrast that experience with completely the opposite. Last three months, Chennai is struggling with water crisis. There is no water in that city. The same city, got a sandy strike, sandy like storm three years ago. It went underwater. So look at how disconnected this whole story looks like. Three years ago, we were under the water. Now we are without water. So instead of now, the, even the children going to go get the meal, those children are now running behind water trucks to go and get water so that they can actually have water to uh, use for daily use. Restaurants are shut down. Hospitals are being constrained without water. So it's such a contrasting experience for me. And when you look at it from that perspective, to me, sustainability is not a buzzword. Sustainability is the way of living. And it clearly articulates how change in the climate dynamics affects the bottom of the pyramid, the poorest of the poor. So that, that is something that has, uh, has stood very clearly for me then. And it is even more clearer for me now. Because the income inequality is going to affect the poorest of the poorest in the society. And that's totally unacceptable. So do you think there could be a day when LEED becomes not a point system based on uh, technical outcomes, but on people's outcomes? Or do you know what I mean? Like, I could, could I do. the paradigm shift be that I do. profound, I do. do you think? I do. I think, I think it's, a, it's absolutely the right question to ask. This is why LEED for communities and LEED for cities have put a lot of emphasis on quality of life. In LEED, we have a couple of items that touches on social credits, but predominantly it's a technical outcome to your point. Points are given for all the technical things you do in a building, and of course all the um, other intangibles you do to the building. But however, with cities and communities, we went a little bit further and beyond, focusing on quality of life. Really focusing on income inequality, social equity, and making sure economic prosperity, economic inequality, economic empowerment. So we've gone through that, of course it's our first version of LEED, we have gotten that conversation started. So with that in mind, I do believe very quickly, LEED will not just reward technical outcomes. LEED will go well beyond uh, the technical outcomes to basically realize a very simple truth. Green building is all about people. And at the end of the day, as much as we are focusing on the structures, we need to focus on the people who reside in those structures. And that's the direction LEED is going to take. And that is why we are painting a new vision called LEED Positive which means that we want to have a positive impact on our environment, our people, and most importantly, the economic prosperity. Okay. That's the direction we are taking. I have one more question that I want to sneak in, and it's a big one, before <laughs> we open it up to, to Q&A. You, you know, I was listening to, I'm a podcast guy, I love podcasts, and I, I was listening to one where they had a, an entire speech by you recently, it was fun. Um, <laughs> and you asked a question that I thought was so provocative for someone who runs an organization called the U.S. Green Building Council, which is, why are we building anything at all? 
Do you remember that? Absolutely, I do. Um, can you? <laughs> <laughs> and I think you were you were talking about that in the context of New Orleans, and you had recently been to New Orleans. Um, New Orleans has lost a lot of population since Katrina, Correct. Hurricane Katrina, and. Um, you know, sometimes in, in the green building movement, there's this emphasis on building new things to become more sustainable. But I think your point was, let's reuse what we already have, particularly in a place like New Orleans, where there's a lot of existing structures that aren't being used. And, um, you know, in Cleveland, we're in a little bit of a similar situation. We have, we've lost a lot of population, as everyone who lives in Cleveland is, you know, probably tired of hearing um, <laughs> over the years. And we have a lot of vacant structures. And you know, our solution is often to get rid of those structures. They, they get to a point where they can't be salvaged and we, we tear them down. So, um, you know, so, so can you talk a little bit more about that idea that I think is so provocative of why are we building anything at all? Is there a way we can be better reusing structures that we already have? Absolutely. I think uh, if first and foremost, by 2050, it is estimated 400 billion square meters of built space will be on this planet. So think about this for a second. If we have this many problems with lesser than 400 billion square meters, that means you're gonna have much more problems. So I, I, don't, I don't understand why we are building so much. Again, I reiterate that point. Um, if you really look at it, the, the thought does to tie to the story of New Orleans, as I was flying into the New Orleans airport, I just see surface parking open in the middle of downtown. I don't get to see that in other places, right? When I go through other airports, I don't see surface parking open. So, and then they're trying to build. I said like, why are you building outside and leaving surface parking in the middle of downtown? Particularly for a city that almost lost 50% of its population. Just do the math. It doesn't make any sense. And then you're still dealing with stormwater issues. You're still dealing with natural disasters. You're still dealing with resilience. You're still dealing with how to build economic vitality into the, into the city. So. Instead of focusing on more building, how to basically optimize existing things. So this morning, I was giving a speech in Children's Museum of your favorite Cleveland. And uh, <laughs> I was very excited to be able to even walk into the building and do the event. And I, I told this to the director, Maria Campanelli, uh, that uh, the child in me wanted to just go and play. Right? <laughs> and of course, uh, I was waiting for somebody else to start the conversation so that I can play. But what is exciting about that is that Maria could have easily gone to another place, which is a brand new, brand new LEED certified building. And they could have made the choice to move the children's, children's museum to that kind of a place, but they didn't. It's an 1866 built building that was taken as the home for the future of children museum. And the children museum has now been absolutely revitalized and worked to become a LEED platinum certified building in the existing building category. And I just announced the certification this morning. It's hot from the press. So when you can take an 1866 building and you can actually reposition that to be a lead platinum building, why are we not bringing that kind of creativity to every building that we have an opportunity to intervene with? Now, not every building need not be a lead platinum building. It can be a lead certified building. It could be a lead silver building. It could be a lead gold building. It could be a lead Platinum building, or I even challenged Maria this morning, let's go beyond platinum and let's go to lead zero so that that building takes less energy than it uses and removes more carbon than it produces. So when you put that in context, to me, I think continuing the conversation about making people think about the simple aspect that if you take an existing building and you demolish it and then you construct a new building 
and you rebuilt a brand new lead platinum building, you still will not reverse the environmental impact for as close as 80 years. That's totally unacceptable. And if you don't like the word green, if you don't understand climate change, if you don't understand climate risk, that's okay. But we all understand efficiency and wastage. Why waste resources and why not be efficient? So when you put that in context, I think there is a lot of opportunity from cities and communities' point of view to plan better, to tighten up the master plan, drive a larger density, and drive a better discipline towards focusing on existing buildings equally as new construction. And I think, I think uh, that's how we transform the world in the, in the next generation. I like it. All right. Um, okay, so we are at the midpoint. I'm Justin Glanville, reporter, producer at IdeaStream. I'm reading off my script here. And uh, I need, need that to know what my name is, apparently. And uh, today I'm talking with Mahesh Ramanujam, president and CD CEO of the US Green Building Council and Green Building Certification, Inc. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, or those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, you can do that at the City Club. Um, and our staff will try to work it into the program. So holding the microphones today, our officer and customer experience coordinator, coordinator Tiffany France. Where's Tiffany? There she is over there. And director of programming, Stephanie Jansky. Um, and we do ask, if, if you are going to ask a question, make sure there's a question in there. Right, Dan? <laughs> I've been to enough of these forums where I know that, that part of it. Make sure there's a question. So um, yeah, maybe we have the first question. Any takers out there? OK. Uh, could you please talk about the amount of international cooperation that might go into the build, might go into each project? Um, I mean, first of all, USGBC is an organization that's formed out of partnerships. And so when I mentioned earlier about us being able to influence 176 countries and territories where lead is present and 100,000 projects are present, there is no way we would have gotten out there without the cooperation of all the organizations. So we partner with a variety of organizations around the world. And it is super critical because uh, without those partnerships, there is, there is always a gap in knowledge, there is a gap in implementation, and most importantly, uh, we will see an increased amount of cost. So our, our mantra is partnership is the new leadership. So we continue to partner with international organizations for a variety of reasons. One of them being cost access. Second is that our vision is to think globally, but act locally. So in order for us to act locally, we have to make sure that we have local partnerships because we need to understand the culture, the constraints, and most importantly, the, the nuances of the environment that we are dealing with. So it's, it's, it's something that we are very proud of, of being able to establish. We partner with more than 100 green building councils around the world, and also with all known prominent organizations to really make sure that our ideas that are established on the global platform are implemented very well at the local level. <clears throat> Hi. Um, so in your, in your last question, you talked a little bit about how you know, not everyone understands green policies, not everyone understands sustainability, but most people understand wasted space or wasted resources. Um, based on that, I'm guessing that there are some people who decide to do LEED certification, not necessarily for the environmental impacts. Could you talk a little bit about the coalitions that LEED um, is possibly building between developers, residents, communities, um, with people who might not be interested in the sustainability cause, but you're still building, you know, coalitions between the groups. Uh, 
it's an excellent question because you know I have four types of customers when I think about the world. One is that people who really do lead because it gives them the next differentiated edge. The second one is who do lead because uh, somebody else is doing it, I'm following it. Third is people who have no clue why they're doing it, they're just doing it. <laughs> and then the last but not the least, uh, they are the leaders, they are the converts, they truly do it because they believe in it. Now all four of them are welcome in our community. I don't have a preference on which way you go, prefer that on the fourth category, but I do understand how the world operates. But the key outcome is that for most of the people, the outcome is a better environment. So when we think about this, we continue to encourage people to think about green and implement green buildings as a construct. So what we do is there is, we convene all kinds of partnerships around the world that engages developers, architects, engineers, investors. In this case, we talked about Bank of America, and bank, the bank has invested close to $126 billion in the last 12, month, 12 years to get to invest in environmental-related business opportunities. <coughs> the bank has got a very small footprint in when you consider the global platform, only 19 million square feet. I mean, that's a lot of building space, but that's 19 million is a smaller number in the greater context. But the bank is investing significant amount of money, and they're able to fulfill the goal. And then now they're going to invest another $300 billion worth of investment in the, in the next uh, commitment that they are going to make. So that type of investment needs to be channelized within the communities that we are talking about, developers, engineers, contractors, architects, government leaders, community leaders, and really we are trying to create that consortium for them to really understand that they need to think just beyond LEED certification. They have to think about health and wellness, resilience, social equity, and most importantly, quality of life, which means that it drives economic prosperity for the people at the top as well as the bottom of the society. So those conversations are actively participating and we do them in different groups. So there is a lead group and there is a non-lead group and there is a lot of intra-team intra conversations that's happening because the dialogue is about green buildings and then within that sits lead buildings. I have a question for the, the crowd here. How many of you are in the business of green building trying to get clients to consider getting their building certified in this room? <laughs> And, and I don't know how you're going to indicate this, but maybe a, a <laughs> wave of the hand. But how, like, how does that, how does that, how's that going? Like, do you, are people in, in this area fairly receptive, do you find, to, to the idea of green building? And, no, okay, I see, <laughs> I see a variety of responses out there, okay. Is that, I mean, is that pretty typical, Mahesh, that there's? That is typical, I, I think, I think, uh, you know, when you look at the world canvas, I, I look at China. China is not taking green lightly. China has embedded that in the 13th year, five-year plan, and one of the pillars is to lead with sustainability and green. So China is not doing it tentatively. It's doing it because it stops down government-driven. But obviously, we are not living in China. We are living in the United States. So we allow the democracy to debate and go through the process. And this is where I think in the second generation of USGBC, I believe the onus and the accountability sits with me and the rest of my colleagues and the community within UHBC is to really do a good job of quantifying the human health impact, the economic impact, and then drive the environmental impact. I think in the first generation we have led significantly with environmental impact, but we have done very little on the, the other two aspects. So if we reverse that order, people who don't do that do green because they believe in it, but they will do it because of economic reasons. And again, I'll quote Maria's example this morning. She basically said, it's good for the children to 
understand how to take care of the environment, but also it is good for the bottom line because if you can make that building energy efficient, it puts more money back to the museum, which means you're going to spend more programs for improving children's education and awareness. Mm -hmm. So it has to make sense from a, a business bottom line perspective. To me, sustainability is profitable, but profitability also needs to be sustainable. I've been involved in uh, building and leasing buildings for 30 plus years and involved with an awful lot of uh, sustainability things. I'm happy to say that I think we almost worked our way out of business in terms of now you can't build anything in Cleveland that isn't at least certifiable. What are we going to do? What's USGBC going to do to try and drive the codes on our buildings how can we upgrade those so it makes sense for everybody to build to a sustainable standard? Absolutely. I mean, the role of codes is always there, right? I mean, so with every version of LEED, we only hope and anticipate that the code itself will become inherently uh, smarter or higher. So because the whole idea, the way we think about that is LEED is about building beyond code, right? I mean, that's the, that's the idea. The idea is that is what gets regulated is I would say that the minimum thing that everybody could do in the market and then lead should push the leaders to do more than code. So there is this intrinsic cyclical influence that gets created between code and lead. So what we are doing right now is that we are trying to take in the second generation of our lead thinking instead of doing it a little bit more on autopilot, we are now becoming intentional about how we become smarter about influencing the code to become more stronger, that's where the lead for cities and lead for communities program kick in. Because when you talk about it at a macro level, when we can make better policies, the city leaders will be able to really deploy that construct in a much more easier framework, bring it down to the, to the broader spectrum of people to implement code, then allow lead to raise the bar so that we can continue to push towards our vision for lead positive, which means that we are more positive impact on the environment rather than just trying to deal with the efficiency requirements, right? I mean, doing less bad is not equal to doing more good. Let's be clear on that. So right now we're doing less bad. Let's get past that curve and actually do more good. And to do that, the code itself has to be raised. And that has to be, that has to be done in conjunction with lead going up and getting the market to do lead so that we can actually have the, the code become better. So it's a cyclical process, but it's a very important process because that integration raises the bar on the market. So that's our approach. Thank you so much for your um, comments today. This morning when we were at the Children's Museum, we were talking about the certification that they just received, which was LEED you know, Platinum at the ex for the existing building operations and maintenance, which if you think about all of the buildings across the world that are in operation today, it's a different set of constituents than architects, engineers, and contractors per se. So can you talk a little bit about two things? One is the whole shift towards the measurement for outcomes and performance-based that you have coming forward, as well as anything that USGBC is doing to open up its stakeholder network to grab and capture more leaders who are in the operations and maintenance phase of a building. That's a great question. So you know, for the two-part question you had, the first part is that why did we go to performance, right? 20 years of establishing lead, giving away plaques, 100,000 plaques. One of the favorite questions that I'm always asked is, when is the lead police coming? And when is the lead police going to take the plaque away from the wall? 
there is no lead police. We are a leadership-oriented organization. We are a voluntary body. We are not a regulator. So we can't take the plaque off the wall. But at the same time, the underlying concept is, how do we know that this building is working? So if you go to a restaurant today, you know that you can see the health certificate. And if you see a 90, you're going to get out of the restaurant, right? I mean, 90 score is not a place where you want to eat. You want to, you want to eat in a place that has got 100 because it has got consequence for you personally. So when we looked at that, we said in the era of modern technology, big data, uh, analytics, and everything else, how can we give a small data called a score for a building and tell the market that this is where the building is performing? So when the building is performing at 65, you are asking the question, okay, what is the highest 100? Why are you not achieving the remaining 35? That's a logical question most of the people can relate to and ask. So as we all relate to our own personal credit scores. That's the idea. So what we did is that we said, let's simplify the concept of this building design construction, which is a complicated concept and a complex concept, to basically make it simpler for people to say, if I am in a building, and if that building is attaining a score of 85, and that's an average, and if it goes to 78, I have to question that. That's part of creating the public awareness and pushing the envelope on it. And that's how we actually institutionalize the lead police. Because you know what? You're policing yourself. So when you drop below 80, you lose your platinum certification. When you drop below 60, you're no longer gold. When you drop below 50, you're no longer silver. When you drop below 40, you're not certified. Now, Maria, I was selling this in the morning, Maria of Children Museum, I was telling her the same thing. I said, she's going to ask the question saying, okay, guys, we are platinum. Why did we go below platinum? That's not going to be accepted because the leader is going to be watching it. So that's the idea of performance. And that is something we all relate to in our day-to-day -day lives because we manage our personal finances, our business finances, and of course, our health-related outcomes. So that's the journey we have started because performance is the future of green buildings. The more we can quantify and provide context, the better and faster the change can be realized. The second part of the question is that, interestingly that you asked that question, what we see is a significant gap in the market. The modern buildings are complicated. Modern buildings have modern technologies. So there is a significant skill gap that's out there in the market, particularly from a facility management point of view. Architects and engineers and consultants build the, build the building, they hand it off, they go to the next project. But people who need to take it forward, maintain it, that skill set is a huge gap. When 2009-2010 financial crisis happened, the people who were in the construction industry left. And I don't think all of them came back. We have a huge skill gap. Now, when you think about that construct of skill gap in the market, now you amplify that with the, with the city of Cincinnati having its solar plan, for, the, for example. In our uh, UOGBC Ohio chair talks about this, Mr. Bill, is that being a union city, think about that opportunity that it creates and the challenge. Because all the workers need to learn how to learn how to do solar. If they do, they'll make obviously 13 bucks plus and all the way up to $110,000 for alignment. That's a, that's a very significantly paying job using modern technology and modern constructs to be able to go into the new era of skills development. So when you look at from that perspective, the building design construction skills from new construction transitioning to existing buildings and really maintaining, managing the infrastructure, we have a skill gap around the world. And that's our next opportunity. So what we are going to do in the beginning of the new year is to convene different partners, different players, different institutions, including all the, the union skill development resources to really articulate the importance of really understanding how to do performance improvements for the buildings 
so that you can deliver ultimate value to the buildings, which is improving the asset level performance so that you can deliver a greater human performance and economic performance. So that's a conversation had to be started in the second generation and we are far from it. That's the plan. I have a great follow-up to that because I was really going to ask if lead in moving forward is going to be more about people and reaching people and measuring things from a personal point of view. So these organizations, entities, uh, government bodies that need that outreach to be brought in to participate, how should those entities be thinking about how to structure themselves from a policy standpoint or support standpoint to better engage as you move forward? I think uh, it starts with basically uh, a very simple effort on, our, on everybody's part is to start contextualizing the human experience aspect of it. I don't think we do a good job still when we articulate a policy, when we articulate a rating system, when we articulate even the design constructs of a building or a community, we don't do enough to talk about what it does actually to the human experience. So I'll, I'll narrate a, an example that I shared in one of our conferences. Stefano Bori, one of the famous architects from Milan, he created this concept called vertical forest. And he basically, the building that he created was a, a geothermically heated LEED gold certified building. Fantastic storyline, right? It removes 11 tons of carbon dioxide every year. Now, unfortunately, that doesn't drive a lot of inspirations to people. But what I started talking about was take that data point and take the data and give it a little bit more context in clarifying saying that how this particular idea, this construct, has the ability to impact countless number of people around the world to have better health, better wellness, and most importantly, a disease-free life. When you start contextualizing this and really actually articulating that how Stefano Bori's own personal skills of being able to conceive this masterwork can actually have an influence on not just changing but saving lives is an important condition we have to have. So I think the, the larger effort has to be about how do you take all these elements that we talk about and really contextualizing this in terms of human experience is the direction we have to take. And then obviously through that, through the reformatted messaging architecture, I think we'll open up more partnerships. We will be able to influence more leaders to start thinking about how to really amplify this conversation. I was recently in Missouri Botanical Garden and I'm sure uh, the the Greenest Zoo, which is the Cincinnati Zoo and Botanical Garden, are doing similar things. What they are doing is that is they are not just talking about the Botanical Garden. They are talking about the experiences that the community needs to have to be able to influence energy efficiency, stormwater management, wastewater management, being able to come back and look at solar, and all those constructs are coming in. They are changing the language, they are having the dialogue to basically be able to appeal to the people who are coming into those gardens to understand that it is about them and they have to be part of that action. They have to take individual accountability, and it has to be quantified in terms of actions is the conversation we need to start telling the story on. So I think what's next is about thinking about how do we organize around actions, and how do we change the way we talk about these things, and importantly, making it about everybody's accountability. It's not enough to say that somebody else will take care of it. You have to make sure that everybody takes action, and we have to hold them accountable for it. And That's do, our thought. Do, do we need to stop using terms like green building I, and sustainability? I, I mean, are, are these things just not working? Yeah. I think, I think you, yeah, it's, it's another point, a very important point that you're saying. <coughs> sustainability works, but green doesn't work. Definitely not in this country. The moment you use the word green, they think it's expensive, 
It's elite. You have picked already a party color with it, right? Whether you belong to the party or not, doesn't matter. You're already part of the party. And then the most important part is not inclusive. So here I am sitting and thinking that sustainable future for all. Let's build a green building. The moment I use the word green, the so-called inclusiveness goes away. Mm. So the word green doesn't work. And if you are using the word built environment, get rid of it. They think it is historic buildings. It doesn't make sense to people. <laughs> Don't use the word movement because they think it's political. It's in our word association test, Bernie Sanders is what people interpreted. When I said movement, they said Bernie Sanders. No offense. But it just all these, all these uh, unintended consequences. Right. But the word sustainability works. Recycling works. Water conservation works. Water quality works. Anything related to health and wellness works. Most importantly, if you talk about family, children, it works. Mm. So I think trying to use these words very carefully is very, very important. And also, I think, uh, I think people don't want to hear negative news. Don't show them burning forest and tell them that, look, we are, we are, the world is going to come to an end. No parent wants to look at their children and say, tomorrow morning, you're not going to wake up. It doesn't make any sense. So I think the world needs more positive message. What we need to continue to remind everybody is, everybody can take action. Everybody must take action immediately. And they can do their little part to move the ball forward. I think that's a better message than trying to paint the world in a very uh, negative way. So those are the broader strokes that we have learned from the, um, from the Living Standard uh, campaign report that we have been running for the past uh, year. So take the forest fires out of your PowerPoints. Right? Yes. <laughs> okay, question. Better go edit my PowerPoint real quick. Um, well, thank you, Mahesh, for uh, your leadership and vision. Um, and my, my question kind of builds off the codes question earlier. So in the state of Ohio, like a lot of states, um, codes, uh, building codes are driven by the state. Um, also, a lot of things like public transit are driven by state funding. Energy, uh, clean energy standards driven by the state in other areas. So there's a lot we're doing with buildings. There's a lot we're doing in the city. Uh, but clearly, the state impacts us, and some would argue hamstrings us uh, often. Curious what USGBC's role, if any, kind of at the state level uh, in the US. Absolutely. Oh, you know, in the first generation, this is what I've told our team. In the first generation of USGBC, our advocacy was easy. Because when we were doing advocacy, we could go to each of these states and say, OK, this is the best practice. This is a good thing to do. And you could easily convince them to just quickly do the right thing. But unfortunately, as you can see, that currently the political capital in this country, particularly, is so divided. Our attention span is now scattered on many other aspects. So no good deed goes unpunished, right? Everything, everything gets punished. So we have to work harder. So I've been challenging our team internally to really rethink how we are going to do the second generation advocacy. So starting January, we're going to unravel a plan. And again, this goes back to education, right? It, 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 if you're in a red state, you need to have a specific language. When you're in a blue state, you need to have a specific language. Now, we have always worked with one-size-fits-all message. And the problem is if you don't quantify it, it becomes really difficult for people to actually prioritize, particularly when the city and state, and even at a federal level, you have so many competing priorities. It becomes really challenging for them to say which one scales and which one does not scale. So I think data drives better decisions. Data with context communicates stakes better. So we have to tell data and stories and really build a better narrative and really help the cities to and states to understand where we are going. And that's a campaign we're going to start starting January to go into each of these states and strengthen their existing policies and then also ask them to do more. For example, existing buildings, better benchmarking laws, better measurement requirements, better quantification around 
resilience, health and wellness, and other aspects that directly connects back to the constituents of the state. So I think that's a journey. And then having Lead for Cities and other programs helps us to really tell people that, look, 99 of the cities in this, in this state, we already have four cities kind of doing the right thing, trying to adopt a better climate action plan and go from uh, so-called nothing to everything or better things is a great story to tell. And we also know that it reduces policy risk. So that's where we are going. More work to be done. And uh, I do realize we have to do some hard work in the coming, coming years. Thank you so much. Today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Mahesh Ramanujam. He's president and CEO of USGBC, that's the US Green Building Council, and Green Building Certification Incorporated. He's been in conversation with IdeaStream reporter and producer Justin Glanville. Mr. Ramanujam appears as part of our Sustainable NEO series, sponsored by Bank of America and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District, with additional support from Great Lakes Brewing Company. We have representatives from all of our sponsoring organizations with us today, and we appreciate your continued support of sustainability programming here at the City Club. Our community partners for our forum are Sustainable Cleveland and the USGBC. We appreciate your partnership. We welcome guests at tables hosted by Case Western Reserve University Sustainability, Emerald Built Environments, Northeast Ohio USGBC, and USGBC Ohio M Lab. We are happy to have all of you with us today. That brings us to the end of our program. Thank you, Mr. Ramanujam, Mr. Glanville, and special thanks to City Club members whose financial support makes this forum and every forum possible. To find out more about upcoming forums and how you can support City Club, visit us online at cityclub.org. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.